This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Speaking of Asia podcast by The Straits Times. This is Ravi Velour, and I'm an associate editor and Asia columnist. I was also ST's former foreign editor. This series of podcasts focuses on Asian issues and distills my experience from four decades of covering the continent. In this episode, which is being recorded on Monday, the 6th of September, I focus on the troubles faced by China Evergrande, the world's most indebted real estate company. The company is based in the Chinese city of Shenzhen. I asked the question, how worried should the rest of Asia be about this company's difficulties in repaying its debt? And more importantly, could an Evergrande collapse trigger some sort of regional meltdown? This question needs to be asked because I remember nearly a quarter century ago, that it was the collapse of Hanbo Steel in Korea that probably triggered the Asian financial crisis, although most people like to believe that the crisis began with the devaluation of the Thai baht in July 1997. Hanbo was South Korea's second largest steel maker, and it had debt of nearly six billion US dollars. Its collapse in January, six months before the Thais devalued, came after the collapses of several construction companies and a smaller steel company called Sami Steel. Bankruptcies back then used to be rare in South Korea. The Korean government usually supported ailing companies indirectly by forcing banks to extend loans to them, regardless of whether the loans made commercial sense or not. In that sense, Hanbo Steel was a bit of a watershed moment in Korean economic history. And sure enough, following the Hanbo collapse, the shakeout would come soon enough. Many companies went under as the Asian financial flu swept the region. In some ways, that used to be the situation in China as well, and that led to excesses. But things are changing in Beijing, and it has sent some signals in recent months that too big to fail is not a blanket guarantee that applies to all. And remember that Chinese billionaires are no longer the flavor of the month in Beijing, as President Xi Jinping takes a hard look at some of them, including the most celebrated Chinese billionaire of all, Mr. Jack Ma. So, the political connections of Mr. Hui Kayan, Evergrande's founder, whose wealth was estimated at $45 billion just four years ago, does not have a political Teflon coating. Last month, regulators in Beijing rebuked China Evergrande over its debt. Now, I must add here that I first red-flagged China Evergrande's debt problems in a column that I wrote in April of last year called The Risks of Putting All Your Eggs in the China Basket. Today, those risks seem more imminent. In early August, Standard & Poor's global ratings cut Evergrande by two levels to triple C, which is just a little over the designation for defaulted borrowers. Last week, Evergrande itself warned that it risks defaulting on its debt if it fails to raise cash. On Friday, the 4th of September, Evergrande's bonds tumbled so much in the Shenzhen market that regulators temporarily halted trading in the counter. 
one of its offshore bonds was trading on 26 cents on the dollar. Another bond that is due to mature next year was trading at 35 cents on the dollar. It is hard to imagine that only in May, the bond was trading at close to its face value. Cautious investors prefer bonds because bondholders get paid ahead of shareholders in the event of things going wrong. So it is not surprising that China Evergrande's shares have fallen even more than its bonds. This morning, Evergrande's shares were trading at about four Hong Kong dollars on the Hong Kong exchange. That marks a 72% fall since the year began. Some serious voices are predicting very dire scenarios. Writing in the opinion pages of the Financial Times on 31st August, the billionaire investor George Soros warned that an Evergrande default could cause a crash. Mr. Soros says that President Xi Jinping's crackdown on private enterprise has left the real estate sector, particularly housing, most vulnerable. Soros says that this is because China's birth rate is much lower than the statistics indicate. Evergrande's own explanation is that negative reports about its business has had adverse effects on its liquidity. This has led to delays in construction fees and supply payments, which in turn resulted in work on certain projects being suspended. Now, if this was a smaller company, the negative news would probably not matter that much. But Evergrande has 778 projects across 200 and 23 cities in China. What's more, the company is looking at a record number of court cases filed against it this year, a good number of them from contractors who work on its projects. I saw a recent report that indicated that Evergrande owes $305 billion to suppliers and contractors. That is in addition to the debt that it carries. In contrast, Country Garden Another big real estate company that initiated a controversial project in Malaysia not too long ago has only about a tenth of that number of cases to worry about. This podcast is available on our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us. And now, back to our podcast episode. So, what happens to Evergrande will affect every major city in China. My own impression is that by itself, any significant bad news from Evergrande can probably be handled. After all, it has managed to cut some of its debt. In Chinese money, it has cut debt from 717 billion RMB at the end of 2020 to 572 billion RMB as of the end of June this year. In US dollar terms, that works out to $89 billion. Also, Beijing has been signaling to the market for months that Evergrande is not too big to fail. So, it is not that if indeed the company does collapse, investors did not have adequate warning to prepare. Bankers who work in debt capital markets tell me that some of the big US and European institutions and funds that are traditional investors in debt now only have a token participation in Evergrande, and some have marked down their holdings to just 25%, which essentially means the losses have been factored on the books already. Downside risks, therefore, are limited since the market has mentally digested 75% of the loss. 
So a collapse need not come as a cataclysmic event. That is reassuring. My fear, however, is that if something dire were to happen, it could come mixed with other significant developments that may cause investors in Asia to become nervous. One development to watch is a so-called deeper tantrum. If the United States Federal Reserve and other major central banks like the European Central Bank signal a sooner-than-expected withdrawal of stimulus measures, that had been introduced to combat the pandemic. Something like that took place in 2013. Now, as inflation picks up, central banks will be looking to see when they can begin dialing back the stimulus measures. This could affect sentiments towards so-called emerging markets. More than $360 billion have flown into emerging markets by way of stocks and bonds in the last nine months of 2020. Lately, this has slowed somewhat. But the risk is that a change in investor sentiment could dramatically reverse the flaws. The risk then is that Asian central banks may be tempted to raise interest rates to stem capital flight and currency depreciation. That could be painful for businesses just as the economy is picking up. We need to remember that China is more than a third of Morgan Stanley Capital Index and the FTSE Russell's influential flagship emerging markets indices. For this reason, any significant corporate development in China will radiate outwards. The other issue is Southeast Asia's dismal record with tackling the new waves of coronavirus. Last week, Fitch and other rating companies painted a poor picture of the regional situation. Fitch said that the strong growth seen in the second quarter could be constrained and that downside risks are rising even for big economies such as China and India that recently clocked strong growth. China's economy took a hard knock in August because of the Delta virus. The services industry contracted for the first time since March last year, and manufacturing was affected by issues in the supply chain. Big container ports like Ningpo, Chaozhan have faced shutdowns to curb outbreaks. The central bank has signaled a further cut in the reserve requirements for Chinese banks after they were already cut in July. This suggests a measure of nervousness about growth. In Japan, Asia's second biggest economy, industrial production has declined 1.5% in July from the previous month. The best case scenario for all of us is that Chinese regulators are on top of the situation and will know how to manage things if matters go wrong. Evergrande is not the only company that has had to cope with bond defaults. Several other companies have defaulted as well. Since the Asian financial crisis of 1997 to 1999, Asian central banks and policymakers also have acquired significant expertise in handling crisis situations. My worry, though, is that while they can cope with a single big crisis, or maybe two, a triple whammy that involves the three big issues I just flagged, a big corporate collapse, a slowdown in growth, and rising interest rates, may just be a whole lot of excitement at one time. As always, it is wise to be careful and to stay close to the news. I shall leave you with those thoughts. You've been listening to Speaking of Asia. I'm Ravi Velour, and do check out my byline in The Straits Times Online. We also have links in our podcast text description below. I'll be back next month with the next Speaking of Asia podcast. Until then, stay safe. Goodbye.
The Asian Insider Podcast channel is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us.